This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Crisis of Revelation. Our author is Ross McRonald. Thank you, Ross, for joining me today. You're quite welcome, Mr. Barker. This l- this looks like it would be a religious book, and uh, I don't think that's entirely correct. This is a novel. It has a lot of uh, intrigue, other plot lines. Tell me about the story, and how did you come to write it? Well, the story is simply that of a... Uh an engineer, mining engineer, who sells a major company and becomes interested in the Bible and finds out that he's read a couple of books um, that purport to locate where the possibility of Jesus being buried, i.e., not of being, not of been dying on the cross. And he organizes a a group of people and they set out to find this place. It also entails all the people who would be interested in making that not happen, various church groups and the like. This book was started about 20 years ago when I became more interested in how the Bible was put together and began reading a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which was written in 1972, and which Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code was based upon. However, that was not a novel, and it purported to say that a priest in the south of France had become very rich, and he had done so by finding what people thought might have been the Holy Grail. Some years later, I read a book called The uh, Tomb of God, which was written by two British authors who purported to have found a location in the south of France. Interestingly, it was in this area that Heinrich Himmler actually sent a group of German archaeologists to dig around during the Second World War. They never apparently found anything. So I went back and looked at the scripture, and reading Mark, the book of Mark, which was written some 80 or 90 years after Jesus had died, it says that Jesus tells Mary in the Garden of Gethsemane, touch me. I didn't die. He then meets his disciples twice and has meals with them, and according to Scripture just says, and then he went to heaven. Well, 80 or 90 years later, who knows? So that's what the premise of the book is, Mr. Parker. Because your book has 35 chapters, are there scenes of intrigue and mystery that keep the story moving along? Which of the chapters do you think is the most intriguing of the, of the chapters that you've penned? It's an interesting question. I think, without giving the book away, when they find two limestone ossuaries in the heart of the mountain, and what that really is going to mean. At that time, obviously, there have been certain groups of people who have been following this uh, expedition very closely, and what that means to them. When did this story unfold? What's the time frame? Well, this this could unfold at any given time. I mean, I put it into the present because it's easier to do that. Uh, no one has obviously gone after looking at this that I have known of, except uh, a Dutch uh, archaeologist did find uh, what he thinks is the body of some Templars, uh, of the Templars in that mountain. It was found about, uh, I think, about 15 years ago. And you also mentioned something about a body being discovered that looks like it had been through a crucifixion. Is that also included in your book? Well, yes. It, uh, in the ossuaries, uh, uh, Dr. Campbell, one of the uh, people on the, on the expedition, uh, physician, uh, sees that uh, there were uh, marks through the uh, hands 
that uh, showed that the bones had been broken but had healed, which obviously meant that the person who had been crucified did not die. Very interesting. Who do you think your audience is going to be? Who do you think will be motivated to read this book? Well, I think this country is becoming a great deal more secular, and there's a lot of people interested in reading similar kind of genre, uh, because it, I think, wraps up a lot of interesting material, which is uh, historically uh, correct, into what might happen and uh, what would happen if, uh, if someone said they found what purported to be the bones of Jesus and he did not die on the cross. That would be the crisis of Revelation. And it would be also uh, very controversial. Absolutely. Is that the only controversial idea that you have espoused in your book, or are there others? That is the main one, but there are obviously groups of people in there who would become controversial completely, including the Vatican and uh, some of the um, right-wing, excuse the expression, Bible thumpers. That might alarm them a little bit, yes. Um, I would hope that when people read this book, they would put aside the myths and go back to reading some of the references, such as Dr. Bart Ehrman at uh, North Carolina University, who's a professor of theology, and has written significantly on Christian uh, beliefs and how they occurred throughout history and what prompted them. My thoughts about Christianity, religion in general, is that if it has basis of fact in your faith, then it'll withstand scrutiny. So I don't think that, even though there may be some controversial ideas in here, that that should be anything that would alarm anybody of faith who, who has a strong foundation. Now, how would you introduce this book to someone who doesn't know about its content? Well, that's been asked of me by a number of my colleagues, and I tell them very simply it's a, it's a story of a, of a mining engineer who goes out to seek the bones of Jesus and see if his theory is correct and what it, what it leads to and what, it, what happens. Any similarities to Raiders of the Lost Ark and those stories that have been produced on film? I don't think it's quite that genre. It's, uh, that has more of an adventure story to it. Uh, one uh, often thinks, of, obviously, of Harrison Ford when they think in his swashbuckling ways. These are pretty ordinary people. Granted, they have some money, but uh, they're pretty ordinary people with ordinary thoughts and what it means to them. Is there one scene in your book that would stand out if someone wanted to uh, perhaps produce a movie similar to Raiders? I don't think that that would... I can't conjure up one given scene. I think it's the body of the work, Mr. Barker, that that shows that this is built step by step. Um uh, there is also an, an aha moment in it uh, that I like very much, and that is um, when they, two of, the, two of the protagonists, discuss how the Shroud of Turin was made. There's been a great deal of uh, controversy about that, and no one has yet been shown how to do it. However, I think there is something to the chemistry that I've outlined in it that I would like somebody to take up the challenge. Fabulous. And what one thing would you like readers to take away from your work? To delve into their myths and to see whether they are they fit with what they've been told and what would challenge them to believe what they've been told. Besides a Pulitzer Prize, are there any other professional goals related to your life as a writer? No, not really. Uh, I've taken great pride in being a physician and practicing medicine for over 40 years um, and having had a very wonderful career in medicine. This was started as an avocation, but it would allow me, if it became well-known, to begin to think of myself perhaps as a bit of a Renaissance man. And this is not your first book. This is your second book. No, this is my second book. My first book was written about 15 years ago called Exit Strategy. I'm thinking that it would be important that you condense your assembly time a little bit on your next novel. Are you planning to write one in the future? There is something rattling around in the back of my head, but I'd like to spend enough time to pull the material together because when I read a book that has uh, mistakes in the chronology and the history, I find that I lose interest in the book very rapidly. 
So I have to assemble a great deal of information for my next book to to make it uh, seem credible. What about this book sets it apart from the others in the marketplace right now? Well, I don't think anybody has gone quite this far with what might be happening in religion. Certainly Dan Brown alluded to it in The Da Vinci Code, and I haven't read his further novels, but this really lays out in spades what would happen or what might happen just in a small way. Are you a journaler by any chance? A lot of my authors journal to put creative ideas on paper and maybe come up with a storyline. Is that something that you do as well? I don't keep a journal per se. Um, My wife says I have a phenomenal memory. I'm not so sure I do. I I don't think I do, but I I remember a lot of things that all of a sudden come together, and and that's how some of this book came together. Uh, For example, I read an article in Scientific American perhaps 20 years ago on crucifixion and what the pathologist said about it and how it occurred and what happened. And I can remember the article quite distinctly. So I guess I keep a journal in my head. Amazing gift. Absolutely. I used to have that when I was about two or three years old, and somehow I got, uh, it got lost in the, uh, in the growth pattern, I guess. The most challenging part, besides 20 years of uh, assembly and research, was there anything else that was challenging about putting this story together? Making it as accurate as I could, um, not being a professional writer, um, making sure it was a good read. And uh, the people who've looked at it and read it think it is a good read. So uh, that's what makes me happy. Uh, I'm getting a better read now on exit strategy from some of my friends who have now found the book, and they like the, the story there, too. The title of the book, again, is The Crisis of Revelation. Our author is Dr. Ross McRonald. Ross, thank you for joining me today. Where do we get copies of your book? The book will be available on Amazon. And do you personally have a website at this point? Not, not, not at this time, sir. No, uh, I don't. All right. And again, the author's name is Ross McRonald. I'm sure that gets mispronounced like my name does often. It is Dr. Ross McRonald. Thank you for joining me today. You're quite welcome, and thank you for the interview, sir. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana, through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. 
The title of the book is The Unofficial Guide to Achieving Your Goals, and our author this morning is Onyx Jones. Welcome, Onyx, to the program. Good morning. Thank you, Jay. This is a book, obviously, about uh, getting success in your world, whether it's personal or business success, and very appropriate at the first of the new year, 2014. Thank you for joining me today. Tell me about your book. How did you get motivated to put this together? Originally, I just I wanted to put something down in paper that could inspire people and help people pursue their dreams and their passion. Um, I worked uh, in environments where I had a lot of uh, staff and employees and uh, customers that came my way, and I found myself trying to give them like motivational quotes or things to inspire them, um, just so that life just seemed like it would have more meaning. So I decided to put something down on paper, and then the more I wrote, the more I decided it really should be a book. Um, I have always had a passion for writing. I would find ways to write manuals because my field of work is accounting. So I would write manuals just so that I could satisfy that need of writing. Um, And so this writing the book kind of was a twofold. I could inspire people, but then I could also pursue my passion, uh, which is writing. And so I got to do two things at once. So it was really exciting putting the book together. And your book cover mentions this, hold yourself accountable in fun ways. Expand on that for me a little bit, please. Yeah, when you pursue your passion, you've got to be in a state of being excited about what you're doing. So if you read a book and it's too much like um, an instructional book where you have to check one, two, three, then it's not fun anymore. And then it kind of dampens the passion. So when you go, my belief is when you go for your goals, you ought to do it with excitement. And so I try to make the book lighthearted. There's a chapter in there that talks about using a goals partner, so someone that can do it with you, someone you have fun with, someone that there's a lot of energy with. So the intent is when you're pursuing your passion, you're doing it with a high level of energy and excitement. Well, you and I are probably motivated individuals. Um, Part of the dangers of that is getting so motivated that you begin to send yourself on a guilt trip. How do you avoid that? Right. So in the book, it talks about the idea that sometimes some of us, we pursue careers that generate income for us, that help us with day-to-day. And so when you get into the idea of pursuing your passion, you want to just go for it. And sometimes you might have an imbalance, so that's where the guilt comes in because you have a career that you've got to continue because right now it's paying the bills, but you have this thing that you're passionate about and you want to now do it all the time. And so you have to have balance. So there's actually a chapter in the book that has uh, a budget that helps you draw out your budget. Because I believe that if your finances are in balance, then you don't have to feel guilty about pursuing your passion and doing things that you enjoy doing, especially when the intent is to monetize on those things that you're passionate about. But it helps you keep things in check because while you're doing your passion, you still have to pay the mortgage or the rent, you still have to pay utilities and like. And so that's the chapter that really helps keep you grounded. It actually has a budget um, to help you kind of stay in balance. So there's no guilt needed. You get to do what you want to do as long as you know that your finances are intact and that you're being responsible and taking care of business. There are also some ideas which are very apropos. Many of my authors journal, and in your book you've also suggested that the goal setter should journal. And among the things that you've mentioned, you you say, number one, find five interesting motivational educational things in your reading, so a reading plan is important to them. Identify at least one thing you'd like to do or change in your relationship with others to improve your life. And the third one was discuss five things you are thankful for in your relationship with your goals partner or someone special in your life. And a goals partner, that can be someone that is um, an accountability partner also, wouldn't it be? Exactly. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Someone that you enjoy spending time with, but someone also that will check you when you're not 
on track or someone that says, hey, you said you wanted to do this, this, and this, and so far you haven't done it. <laughs> so, yes, it's an accountability partner, someone that's fun, inspiring, gives you energy, but also says to you, hey, this is something you wanted to do. You need to make sure you stay on, on track with what you're trying to do. Your book then has some practical application that an individual like myself or anyone else that wants to be motivated to achieve the next level in life, uh, they can do so by following some basic step-by-steps. Yes. Who do you think this book is going to appeal to and why? Initially, when I wrote the book, I wanted it to appeal to uh, kind of the group of people that maybe doesn't read a whole lot, who, because my book is very short, very easy to read. You can flow right through it. Um, I have found so far since it's been released, a lot of young people love the book, which totally excites me because if you can have this information that's in this book at the age of, you know, 16 or 18, uh, how much different life can be because you set off on the right track pursuing your passions and also making sure you monetize and generate income. And so I'm, I'm just really excited about uh, young people getting a hold of the book. Um, but it's really for anyone. There's a lot of quotes in the book. And sometimes, even if you really are happy with where you are in life and you're kind of on the right path, sometimes just reading a quote kind of inspires you. So there's tons of quotes in the book just to give inspiration. So really, anyone can read it and get something out of it. Um, but my real hope is that a lot of young people gravitate towards it and kind of get excited about life and living a life filled with passion and make decisions from the very beginning about their careers and they can go into the path that they're really passionate about. One thing I found in your book that is difficult for me to do, and I know other people who are motivated, is to identify your accomplishments. And sometimes we get stuck in the weeds looking at the things we have not done instead of focusing on the things that we have done and accomplished. Those are important uh, important uh, view, viewpoints that we need to assess in our lives. You are absolutely correct. Uh, I'm, I'm actually working on another book right now about how to actually start your business. You, you know, you go through the goals book, you decide you want to start a business, and the first chapter in the book, it talks about looking at your accomplishments. So I really think it's important. I'm reiterating this idea over and over again. You've got to look at what you've done. A lot of times, if you look at what you've accomplished, not only do you feel better about your, what you're doing and, and you get more energy, but you also kind of can find where your passion lies. You go, wow, I did this, this, and this. I really have some passion in that area. You know, I really ought to pursue that. Uh, sometimes it's the little successes that we maybe received in, uh, while we were in school or in college that really are a telltale sign of some things that we're really passionate about. But somehow, you know, we moved into the career that was going to make us the most money or it was the easiest career to pursue or it was something that was just given to us, that opportunity. And we really didn't find the true passion. And so when you look at your accomplishments, things that you're most proud of, you, you can kind of find out a little bit about yourself, and you also get really excited and proud of, you know, what you've done. And it gives you motivation to keep doing more and, you know, achieving more. And this is the kind of advice that parents can take on when they're motivating their kids. I have a situation in a family member that seems to focus on your not achievements. Your your goal may have been an A in this test and you received a B plus. And a B plus may have been your best or your best effort, but here comes human nature. We're in a very competitive world. We tend to focus on others instead of on ourselves and just doing our best and celebrating the accomplishments. Well, this is your book, not mine, and uh, enough of my commentary. Describe the process of writing your book. How did you go about putting it together? Well, I'll tell you. I lived it. (laughs) I read. I love to read. So I read a lot of uh, material in books, and there's some books that I read from years ago, like The Master Key System by Charles Hannell, um, that I know many young people wouldn't be interested in reading, so I kind of glean from those uh, that information, and I pull that stuff out, and I go, now, how can I write that concept in today's 
language. You know, how can young people relate to this? Because I believe a lot of information from books uh, in the 1800s, etc., can give you a lot of insight. And even though it's from years ago, the same rules apply. I mean, it still can be used today. And so I read a lot, and then I also lived it. You know, I went through a process of identifying where my passion lied and, and, and kind of transitioning in order to even write this book. Because as I indicated before, my field was accounting. And so I, you know, I did numbers, but I had this passion for writing. So lots of research, reading other material, and then also being willing to just document my life. So I have journals and journals and journals of uh, years where I would just kind of document my process uh, in, in going through today, even writing the book. So coming from a field of accounting to the day where I'm actually, you know, writing a book about gold. So it was really exciting um, to just sit down and put things down on paper and pull out research and and uh, pull out my journals. And it was really a, a great process. I, I got a lot out of it. One question that you pose for the reader that caught my attention was this. If you, reader, were nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize... What would you want it received for? That's a statement that would cause reflection. Yeah, I, you know, for me, when I wrote the book, I had a goal. And my goal, and it's still my goal, is that this book actually can shift the way people think and, and even change certain cultures and, and change, um, you know, certain groups of people or generations. So if one person reads the book and starts thinking differently, they're going to have different conversations with different people. And so now they're making an impact. And they don't realize what impact they're having because now they're going to say certain things, maybe from the book, that inspires them to other people. And then those people are going to think about life differently. And then they're going to share that new thought. So slowly and gradually, you're, you're changing a culture. I mean, everybody's talking differently. They're talking about pursuing their passion. And I think, you know, when you win a Nobel Peace Prize, basically that's what you're saying. You've impacted a large number of people in a positive way. And you may not get the Nobel Peace Prize for your, your efforts, but it's the same concept. You're impacting people through your everyday connection with people, inspiring them, motivating them, you know, taking one quote from the book and using it all the time to inspire other people. You know, it's, it, nobody is limited on the impact that they can have in this world. They really aren't. And some people get recognized for it and some don't. But you know what? It's, it's about when you live your life and, you, you know, it's time to say goodbye that you said, you know, hey, I had an impact on as many people's lives as I could, and it was positive, and it was motivational, and I feel good about that. Well, considering you're a detailed person, obviously, if you're in the accounting or have an accounting background, it's wonderful that you've been able to put together a book that is motivational, inspirational, and only 83 pages, so anybody should be able to read this. This is a great book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, what Yes, you know. Besides besides being a, a book that's brief in its uh, content, but very impactful in the ideas you put together, what other things set this apart from others in the marketplace? Well, one of the things is um, I, I read a lot, as I indicated, and I usually get books that really motivate me, inspire me, and get me going. But then that's it. <laughs> and so I wanted to write a book that would actually be something you could continue to pick up and continue working the steps. So this book is 86 pages because if it were any longer, nobody would finish it. I want people to get through the book, read it, and finish it. And then I want them to go back over and over and over because this is like a formula. You know, it's A plus B equals C. So if you put the first goal in and then you put the effort and the desire and then you, you, and it equals the win and you get to pursue your passion and the goals achieved, well, now you can put the second goal in the formula. So you go back and you read the book again, um, and you, so you can continue to pick it up, you know, and keep reading it. And <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it's short, to the point, but it has specific steps. It is a formula. You can follow the steps, 
it's seven steps. It's not too difficult, but it has a formula that will that if you follow, you will get success. And I think kind of where it sets it apart is it's short, it's easy to read, it's kind of fun to do, but it has a formula that actually walks you through specific steps that you need to take to really achieve your goals, and it works. And you can pick it up and read it over and over and over, and you're going to get the same positive results. Among the seven chapters you've written, one is titled, Improve Your Talents and Skills. Is there anything in there that's unique in that particular chapter, or is it following a standard pattern of recommendations? Well, I think whenever you're trying to pursue uh, enhancing your skills and things, uh, my theory is that there's some people out there that have done it already, and they've maybe uh, achieved the level of success you desire to achieve. So in my book, I challenge you to find those people and study them and research them and really get in touch with what things that they do in life that help them get successful. And so that way you can kind of put that in your mind and you you can visualize, you can see yourself making those same steps, doing those same things. Um, So the unique part of it is really the piece of, um, it's more studying the craft of others in order to implement within yourself Sometimes we get discouraged if we know that we want to enhance our communication skills per se and we're not getting the level of success that we think we should. We get discouraged. We go, oh, I can't do this. Oh, I'm too nervous. I can't stand in front of people. I sweat. You know, you come up with all these reasons why you can't do it. Well, if you're always focusing on other people that are doing it successfully, the only thing that you're really visualizing and seeing is how it works successfully. Eventually, the subconscious kicks in and you start operating and doing those same things um, so that you can have success. So it takes you out of yourself and helps you look at something that's working. And I, I just maintain that if you're always focusing on things that are working, that things that are successful, things that have already been proven to have success, if you're always focusing on that, then you're going to gravitate towards that. And you're going to start enhancing your skills in a more positive manner. And it kind of shuts down the negative talk and chatter, oh, I can't do it, I'm not good enough. Um, you, you kind of don't even have time to focus on that because you're too busy trying to get to, you know, your goal. And that's where you're focused. That's where you're, you're centered on. So, you know, I, I'm hoping that those chapters there really uh, set themselves apart from maybe other books just because of, of that one fact right there. Great advice. Was there anything challenging about putting this book together? Yes, I was, you know, I was um, working full time. I was a mom. I had gotten married, so I had a new family and, you know, life. And there was so much going on. But I did what I said in my book. I took time out, whether it was 15 minutes or an hour, to write the book because it was something I was really passionate about and I enjoyed doing it. And I just, whenever I had a moment, and it took a while to actually, you know, finish the book. But, uh, wow, when I was done, I was so pleased. And I was really very um, impressed with the work of iUniverse as well. I mean, they helped me through the whole process. So it was it was fun, but it was challenging with balancing. But I actually lived what the book talks about doing, which is pursue your passion and it becomes more and more a part of your life and you find time for it. You make time for it. (laughs) Thank you, Onyx, for joining me today. Again, the book title is The Unofficial Guide to Achieving Your Goals, Seven Steps to Creating Your Roadmap to Success. And our author is Onyx Jones. Onyx, where do we get copies of this book? Oh, right now you can acquire them on Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. Fabulous. And do you personally have a website yet? Not yet, but we're working on it. So we'll be up and running shortly. All right, Onyx. Thank you again for joining me today. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. 
Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Under Color of Law, and the author is A. Dwight Pettit, and Dwight joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dwight. Hi, Steve. How are you doing today? Happy holidays to you. Well, thank you, and happy holidays to you, and this story is your personal story from the 40s to the present time, dealing with the civil rights movement, constitutional uh, issues, of course, you're a civil rights and constitutional and criminal lawyer, uh, but we're really going to celebrate the life of your father and all that you learned and then some of your accomplishments as well, correct? That's correct. So how long have you been a criminal lawyer? Well, Steve, I've, I've been practicing law in Baltimore, Maryland for 40 years exactly. I did uh, three years prior to that with the Small Business Administration Administration. Uh, in Washington, D.C., right after law school. Uh, but when I came back home to Baltimore, I opened my private practice in the area of criminal law, constitutional law, civil rights, and personal injury. So I've been a lawyer totally for 43 years, but 40 years in private practice. Well, take us back, Dwight. Take us back to a time when you were a young boy and your father was a local civil rights leader. What do you remember? Well, we, my father was the first black engineer employed here by the United States Army, Army at uh, Fort Holabird. And uh, his, his section division uh, closed down, and he was transferred to a place called Aberdeen, Maryland Ground, one of the largest military scientific bases uh, in the country. And uh, he was one of the few black engineers, or maybe the only black engineer there. And unknowing to him, the schools were still segregated. They were desegregating very slowly because Brown versus the Board of Education had already been passed. But they were not admitting uh, students at, at large. It was, you had to go through an application test. And at that point in time, they had, it should, it had, uh, had not admitted any black males to the Aberdeen High School. Uh, so as a result, my father uh, came and retained or uh, secured the NAACP, some great lawyers, Juanita Jackson Mitchell, uh, Thurgood Marshall, Jack Greenberg, and Tucker Daring, and took it into the United States Federal District Court. Uh, we were successful in that case, and I was ordered into Aberdeen High School in the 10th grade uh, at approximately 14, 15 years old. I didn't have any problems, Steve, because I was an athlete, and people just... If you can throw the ball, catch the ball, run the ball, people sort of gravitate to you and and uh, accept you. Uh -huh. So even in an all-white situation, I didn't have any major problems or impediments. I had one little fight, and after I dusted that person off, I was sort of accepted <laughs> by all the students in the school. But my father caught pure D hell. Uh, they put mm -hmm. rebel flags up in his office. They played Dixie when he walked through the door. Uh, they wouldn't give him a phone and uh, secretary and all of those type of things to demean him. And for 14 years, he was never promoted. Uh, he was told that he wouldn't be promoted because of what he'd done in the school system. And plus, he was vice president of the NAACP and active in the integration of restaurants and things like that. And so I had the opportunity to grow up, uh, finish Aberdeen High School, go to Howard University undergrad, Howard University Law School, take the Maryland bar and come back and take my father's case. Uh, because at this time, no case had gone up uh, to the high courts in relationship to back pay, and especially for federal employees in 
uh, the United States government, even though Title VII had been passed that had not incorporated federal employees. And so we went before the United States Court of Claims with a, the help of a man by the name of Paul Tagliabue, who would later become uh, NFL Commissioner of Football. But he assisted me because he had a case that was a prior case in the Court of Claims, but the U.S. Court of Claims took my case and heard it first in bank, which means all seven judges, and they found in favor of my father and awarded him $100,000 back pay, which was a lot of money at that time, and four years, I mean, four promotions and all privileges and immunities that went with uh, GS-14 is what he's promoted to from the GS-11. And what that case did, it established two things, that there could be a relief in, in terms of back pay and retroactive pay for federal employees, uh, even though Title VII had not been passed. And also it established the what is called the but-for test, which was the evidentiary test around the country uh, in terms of if you prove that you were qualified, then the burden of proof shifted to the defense to show why you had not been promoted but for racial discrimination. So the case became a landmark around this nation, and I would go into courtrooms and federal courtrooms and federal administrative hearings, and the judge would always ask me, Mr. Pettit, uh, do you have anything to do with Pettit versus the United States and that it governs the rules of evidence for our proceedings? And I'll always say with great pride that uh, George D. Pettit is my father and I was my father's lawyer. And when the case went up to the United States Supreme Court through another case called Teston versus the United States, the court firmly said that if it had received Pettit, it would have reversed Pettit because only Congress can make those laws, uh, not presidential executive orders. And But at that time, by the time the Supreme Court addressed the matter, we had settled, my father had been promoted, and, every, and he had been totally vindicated for all of those years of sacrifice and torment as a result of him putting me and securing a, a proper education for me, uh, his son, starting in the 10th grade. So that's, that's the story in a nutshell in relationship to one of the main themes of um, uh, uh, under color of law is the, the three cases that I refer to as the legal trilogy in my life. Pettit versus the uh, Board of Education of Harford County, Pettit versus the United States, my father, which I was counsel, and Pettit versus the Board of Law Examiner that I had to file suit against the state of Maryland when I came here to practice law. Well, that's quite a story and quite an accomplishment, and I can't even imagine the thrill to represent your father and uh, win in court for, obviously, uh, his just due. Well, I'll tell you, Steve, you, you can't even imagine the way I felt when I walked into that court well in front of seven federal judges, and my mother and father were sitting behind me, and my wife and my secretary, uh, the feeling is indescribable as I go into it in the book, uh, to be able to be blessed, I'm very religious, uh, to be able to be blessed uh, by God, to have that opportunity uh, to vindicate and fight for people who had given their whole life uh, fighting for me. Tell us about the challenges when you were much younger as a child, when you were personally attacked by the media. What, what was, that must have been an ordeal. Well, Steve, you hit it right on the head. I, because what my father did, when they denied me admission to the Aberdeen High School, he sent me 30 miles away back to Baltimore and boarded me out with a very nice family in Baltimore so I wouldn't get academically behind. And so that was like my third school in, uh, in a three-year period of time before I was admitted to Aberdeen High School. And so I go into this new school. The school in Baltimore City was called Lamel. I had been going to the black school in the county before we went to Aberdeen, which was Solace Point. So I had gone to all of these different schools, and he was determined to keep me up to par academically. So if we did win the suit, I would be able to academically compete. And it was just such a, a thing to walk into that classroom and be on the front page of the Baltimore Sun, which was our basically our state newspaper at the time, where they were talking about my shortcomings and uh, the allegations from the other side that I was mentally retarded, uh, that my IQ tests were not up to par with white students, 
and that the county was basically trying to protect me from having to compete with white students with a, a much more superior intellect and my intellect being uh, basically inferior. And so with the press bombarding me uh, with that and so forth, it was quite an experience to uh, be in school 30 miles away from home at 14 years old, uh, living with an alien family that I later became to know and love, uh, and to be going home every weekend. But my father was so uh, determined that I was going to have every chance in life. Uh, he hired all types of tutors for me. I had uh, tutors in math and tutors in English and tutors in Spanish. So when I came home for the weekend, I had to meet with my tutors uh, all, uh, mm. all Saturdays and Sundays. So I didn't, as a 14-year-old, I didn't have much of, I had no social life whatsoever. Everything was dedicated to the litigation. As I said, Thurgood Marshall was here and Renita Jackson Mitchell, and we were preparing for trial. They were having me take an additional test uh, to rebut the foolishness that the state had come up with. They pulled what they called achievement tests and IQ tests uh, when I was in the third and fourth grade, and who knows what I was focusing on or what I was thinking about, or for that matter, I was such a a rebellious kid that I didn't even know what I would have been thinking about, much less an achievement test when I was in the third and fourth grade. But that was the evidence that they were allegedly using against mm -hmm. me, and that's what was hitting the national media, and particularly the, the media here in Maryland, uh, the Baltimore Sun. So that's, was, it was quite an impact and, and mental challenge of me to to deal with that on a day daily basis because the kids knew it, the teachers knew it, and and uh, I was determined to prove them wrong. And the court says, as I say in my book, that it was so astonishing because the court actually says when they were delivering on deliberating on the case that I had been elected class president, was elected to the student council, and was elected chief judge of the school court all in one year in the ninth grade. So the judge, Roselle Thompson, at the time, chief judge of the Maryland U.S. District Court, so the kid can't be with the soul. Uh, he can't be that dumb and do all the things that he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and your book also focuses on your part in the Jimmy Carter administration. Yes, that was a fascinating experience. In fact, let me just tell you, uh, if I may, Steve, I got a fantastic letter from Jimmy Carter a couple of weeks ago because I sent him and Rosalind a copy of the book. And it was just so awesome at that time. I was determined to get into politics. I had returned back to Baltimore. And I had the opportunity to meet uh, President, well, he was Governor Carter then, very early on the campaign trail. And uh, I became very much involved in his campaign because I was one of the first African-Americans uh, coming into the campaign outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and especially being a, an African-American civil rights attorney. And so I, I became had the good fortune of becoming very, very close to he, uh, his son, Chip Carter, and his wife, uh, Rosalind Carter, and becoming very much involved in the Carter campaign. We got so close, I'll tell you a little story I tell in the book, that uh, when he was nominated, when he was elected president of the United States, on inauguration night, my family, my father and my mother, my wife and I were there, and the, the Secret Service came and got us and said, Mr. Pettit, uh, the President of the United States wants you and Mrs. Pettit to join him for the first dance in the nation. And so we walked into a roped-off circle uh, with President Carter and Mrs. Carter and danced along with um, a man by the name of James Rouse, who was the builder of several cities in this nation. And harbors and so forth, and the Senator Robb out of, out of Virginia. We all danced the first dance uh, with the president. And I captured all this in pictures, because uh, I was always paying photographers to, in fact, take the pictures while these things were happening. But one of the things that brought Jimmy Carter, or let me say President Carter, uh, very close, and, my, and what brought us very close, was when, I don't know if you remember, but they had the ethnic purity crisis where he was alleged to have made the statement about ethnic purities of neighborhoods. What he was really talking about was that he saw no problem in maintaining ethnic heritage in neighborhoods, Italian neighborhoods, Chinese neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. But the press blew it up that it was a, a racist remark by a Georgia governor, and this almost derailed his presidency or his campaign. And what I did sent him a telegram. He was in Chicago at the time, and he got the telegram, and I basically gave him advice as to how we could battle that situation and put it to rest. 
And he was so impressed by what I had advised him and what I told him uh, that I got a call from the campaign that President or that then Governor Carter wanted to meet me for breakfast at the Hilton Hotel in, in Washington, D.C. the next day. And so I was just knocked off of my feet that I was actually going to have president, I mean, breakfast with a man who might be the next president of the United States. And so from there on, I was probably as close as anybody uh, could be uh, to a president right on through inauguration and transition and right on into the White House. I was at the first state dinner, my wife and I. I was at the, the peace treaty signing between Begin and Sadat. Uh, everything that happened in the White House uh, for the next four years, I was right there and involved, even though I was nominated for U.S. Attorney of Maryland, which would have made me the first black U.S. Attorney uh, for a state in the nation. But that was blocked then uh, by junior Senator Paul Sarbanes. So that nomination or appointment never took place, but it still had nothing to do with the relationship that I enjoyed with the Carters uh, during their four years in the White House. And what he did was appoint me to the Democratic National Compliance Commission of the Democratic Party. And I was assigned there as the trial lawyer to fight to make sure that at that time, uh, Ted Kennedy did not uh, usurp the nomination for the 1980 race by facts uh, taking any delegates that were not uh, supposed to go to him. So I was put in a very, very important, what I consider the important role of advocacy uh, in the DNC uh, during Carter's White House uh, tenure. The book is titled Under Color of Law. We're talking about perseverance, determination, survival, literally when the going gets tough, the tough get going, one of your key messages. Uh, Dwight, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it through, I understand now, it's on the shelves at uh, Barnes & Noble, but I know you can order it through Barnes & Noble. If you don't have a Barnes & Noble there, if it's not on the shelves of your local Barnes & Noble, and you also can get it through Amazon.com, and you can also get it from the publishers, uh, which is www.iuniverse.com. They have a bookstore online. Thank you so much, Dwight, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve, and uh, you have a great holiday iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.